0: that <laughs> uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 5 and for our purpose this morning we'll read I'm going to read us the whole chapter verses 1 through 14 but we're going to be looking most closely at verses uh, 1 through 6. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bo- and golden bowls full of incense, when the prayers of the saints, or which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song saying. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne... And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. Coming last week from considering Psalm 103 and its powerful call to bless the Lord and to forget not all of his benefits, I wanted to take time this morning to focus in on the one who has made it possible for us to recognize and then bless the Lord. And the one who has accomplished and fulfilled for us all of his benefits. As you may be aware, we're also standing um, on the verge of Advent. Next week is when we'll begin um, that whole season. And maybe this is just a, a particular pet peeve of mine, but or I shouldn't say pet peeve, I should confess it as a struggle. I can be easily distracted from looking at the one whom Advent awaits and for whom the joy of the whole world is focused by considering all the ways that it can be kind of reduced to consumerism and sentimentality and things like that. And so perhaps, well truthfully, it's for my own benefit as well that I just want to focus on exactly who Jesus is and the one whom we have the privilege of serving and of following, even into his new kingdom. And so as we consider the words of this text, let me pray for us one more time. Lord Jesus, it is your glory we are considering. And yet we, along with John, step back and recognize our own unworthiness. So please, Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand that we might hear and be shaped in our characters in such a way that our choices, our work and our time, and even the depth of who we are might be shaped more and more into your design, even into the image of your Son. And it's in his name that we pray all of these things. Amen. So before we dig too much further into the text, um, I wanted to talk about why I chose this text just a little bit more. Um, I think last year when I first started here, I told you this story, but I'm gonna tell it again because I think it's uh, relevant for the moment, but it's certainly relevant for me in my own heart. Um, If you recall... I know we don't like to do this very much, but two and a half or so years ago, back when the beginnings of COVID was just starting to unroll and we thought we were going to go into lockdown for just a couple of weeks, and everything was changing, and even then when it was just a couple of weeks, it was already massively contentious. And we were all improvising how we're going to do relationships, how we're going to do meetings, how we're going to do all the things that we do. And I, as I was thinking through the youth group that I was working with at the time, was recognizing, um, you know, we can't be in person. We can't play any games. We can't do any of our events. We can't even circle up and pray together. We're going to have to be doing things over the computer, which is just the worst. And boy, did we figure out how much the worst it really is. And as I've told you before, I sat there in that moment and I, I thought this was not irony, this was the true feeling of my heart. Oh no, all I have left is Jesus. <laughs> and we chuckle because it's ridiculous, but, but I also need to tell you that that's really, truly where my heart was. And in that moment, I was thinking, this, that's not enough. He's not enough. And it was one of those moments where you think something and then you go, oh no, where has my heart been? And oh no, where is my heart now? Because whether we're thinking through running a student ministry or whatever else might be, I think our problem as human beings affected by the fall, sinful in our own hearts, is that we are more than ready, intentionally or otherwise, uh, to look to just about anything for our hope. Uh, for me, that always runs through uh, how prepared I am, um, whether I've got a solid enough program, if we're talking student ministry or other ministry areas, uh, whether it's my personality that's dynamic enough to connect with enough people or for enough people to start thinking that I'm cool, which gets harder and harder, and, well, honestly, it was never that easy to begin with. Um, The connections of who I know that I'm pleasing or or whose work is going to be, uh, I can do and whether they'll see me or not. Um, And my reputation and my finances of how much I can bring to the table, either just through my own personal accounts or through whatever, you know, program or ministry or event or thing that's happening. And I'll just go all of those places so quickly and so easily. Our problem is that we look to many things for our hope, and yet what this text so boldly brings us, what God's provision for us is in the midst of our confused placement of our hope, confused isn't strong enough of a word, but in the midst of all of that mess and brokenness and evil, he gives us the one who is worthy. And that's what this text so beautifully draws out. The one who has overcome all, it says. And so our call from this is to rightly fix our hope on Jesus. And that's an easy thing to say, and that's actually a very Christian thing to say. We all go, yeah, sure, I know exactly what that means. I already do that. Um, And hopefully, we do. But, but also, let us keep re-evaluating and keep bending our knee and keep bringing ourselves back time and time and time again to the presence of our Savior to be rightly humbled and then rightly ambitious as well in who he is, the kingdom he is building, and the call that he has set before us. And so I want to consider what that means to fix our hope on Jesus from this text in the book of Revelation. And the first thing that I believe it means is that we would sharpen our hunger for worthiness. I, I, I won't pretend to get too far into breaking down all of exactly what is going on in the book of Revelation. If you're familiar, John Calvin was a massively prolific author and theologian, and if you buy a set of his commentaries, you will be delighted to learn in depth wonderful things about 65 books of the Bible. Because when he got to Revelation, he said, nope. And so, maybe one day, but not today. I'm not going there. But I will bring you into the beginnings of the vision. And we will consider the person who is bringing the vision and the hope that is provided. So at this point, if you're familiar with the book at all, Jesus has showed up before John on the island of Patmos and is giving him a vision. And the vision is then broken down to, into letters to be delivered to seven churches. And so he rolls through each of those. Um, and then John gets a peek into heaven in the beginning of chapter 4. And then an angel shows up beside him and says, Come on in. And he steps in and what he sees is the throne and so many things going on. And all of chapter four is basically descriptions of people crying out the holiness of God. And then chapter five is just the beginnings of the action. So we're not gonna get into all the action, but, but we don't have to yet. I mean, dig in, read, wonder, humble yourself in awe before God and what he is doing. But, but this morning, we're just gonna focus on the one who is doing it. So what happens is, John looks, and in chapter five, verse one, he sees in the right hand of one who is seated on a throne, a scroll, and it's covered in writing. And then in a very courtly manner, a mighty angel steps forward in a, in a loud voice, asks, Who is worthy to open the scroll? And in what is probably the most profound moment of silence there has ever been or ever will be, no one answers. And there is a great evaluation. As no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is able to answer me. I'll open it up. And yet, you can feel the tension after the John enters into the very throne room of heaven and sees seated there God himself and sees the scroll brought before him. And so then the question is, who's going to do it? And there is no answer. And so I think before we get too far, it's just right to pause and to acknowledge the call that we should have in our hearts, this should rightly enliven and awaken in us this hunger for worthiness, this right expectation. There should be someone who can open this scroll. There is a need. We need worthiness. We need someone who can answer this call and meet this place and do what needs to be done. And this is important in our own hearts, in our own lives. If you recall, this this sharpened hunger for what is right is not something that's only for that moment, but it's a hunger that we have all experienced and that everyone has experienced since the very beginning of time. Just a few weeks ago, we were looking in the book of Romans and in chapter 8, and John so beautifully brought us through the ways that all of creation, and even we ourselves, and then even the Holy Spirit himself groans, waiting for the one who is worthy. If you look back in Romans 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verses 22, it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is what is being described. This is that moment. Who will open up the scroll? I don't know. But there is a one. And it is he alone that we should fix our eyes and fix our hope. And following on in Romans 8, verse 26, likewise, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is the place that we find ourselves. C.S. Lewis built this out in a very familiar and classic um, paragraph saying, that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. Have you ever had those moments where you're just hungry for something more and it's a peaceful hunger and it's a beautiful hunger but it's a hunger that is not yet satisfied? I think we all experience it. Whether you're in the church or without. Whether you love God or hate him. That hunger is there. Lewis continues, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned asunder. I must make it the main object of life to press on in that, on to that other country and to help others do the same. Brothers and sisters, are we too easily satisfied? Will we set our hopes on all these other things? Will we let our reputation, our finances, our control, our influence, our whatever take the place of Jesus Christ on the throne? it will be nothing but a fraud. Rather, the application of this is that, well, like a baby, you should not dampen your hunger. As your cries are not met, cry all the louder. Pound all the firmer with all the more insistence on the door of the neighbor to say, I do not have what I need, and you do. Please come meet me, mercifully enter in where I do not have what is necessary. In the same way, let us cry before God, continuing to sharpen our hunger, saying, We need one who is worthy. We have a right desire for worthiness and holiness. Meet us here. Don't dampen the hunger. But rather lean all the more boldly into it. Further, humble yourself and keep learning before his word because it's easy at this point to go, yep, I got that. But I just want to remind you, at no point does scripture say, okay, you've understood this much, congratulations, you're done, you've now graduated from Paul's university of Mars Hill or whatever. Um, No, rather we get things like Ephesians chapter 4 where he says, and he has given us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are never done. Are you dead yet? Well, then you're not done. And this is the call. Are you dead yet? No, then you cannot be satisfied with your knowledge. You cannot be satisfied with your understanding of God's love for you in Jesus. You cannot sit back and think, well, I've got it. Rather, sharpen your hunger for holiness. Search diligently for the one whom Psalm 24 describes as who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Look, wait, watch. Actively sharpen your hunger with each virtue you encounter and each vice you are stung by. And your friends, your work, your communities, your school, all around you. Secondly, our text would call us to despair before unworthiness. As we sharpen this desire for the one who is worthy, there is also a right abandoning of all the things that are unworthy, and here again is where our hearts constantly, continuously continuously need to be pushed because how much would we say, yeah, I'll take Jesus, but I'll also have, yes, I get the gospel, but I'm so much more comfortable as well if I can build that in with. But the text doesn't give us room for that. Verse three says, and no one in heaven Or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. You see, here there is a right despair. In addition to acknowledging the need, we must also acknowledge our lack of being able to provide it. The search was for the heavens and through the earth and through the under the earth. This is massively thorough. And it doesn't take much from our reflections to understand exactly what this means if if we follow through the story of Scripture. Um, Genesis 6, 5 through 6 says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. He regretted. It grieved him. Isaiah in chapter 6, as he's coming before the Lord in one of his visions When he stands and finds himself before the presence of this God, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and he is undone. Brothers and sisters, we must despair of our unworthiness. As we just refreshed, as you look through the the, the rolling forward of the revelation of John, um, in the early portions of it, he, he writes out these these seven letters, and if you're familiar with them, they, they have some affirmations of the churches, and then they have some challenges to the churches, and then each one concludes with this saying, but the one who conquers will be, and it gives something specific to that area, and then the next one it says, and the one who conquers will, and then it says in the next one, and to the one who conquers will be, but if you're receiving these letters and even us who read these letters as we uncomfortably associate ourselves with each one of these churches as it rolls through we got to go oh no I have not conquered in this area I don't know my people have not conquered in this area my church has not conquered in this area my elders, my pastors have not conquered in these areas. And brothers and sisters, good. You should be met with that. You should look at the rest of us and say, no, you're a hopeless case. You should look at me and hear my confessions. These are not just trite things to say up front to let you know, hey, I'm one of you. This is, this is real. I am not Worthy. This is John the Baptist making his confession before the people, saying, are you the Messiah? And he says, no, I am not the Christ. Essentially, despair of me. Despair of yourself. Despair of your spouse. Despair of your kings and your rulers. Despair of your parties and your affiliations. Despair of your loves and your affections. Because though good though they may be, They cannot open the scroll. They cannot bring forward the action of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ. They cannot overcome all that would hinder us from entering back into God's kingdom and presence. But if you look in verse 5 and 6, well, there's this wonderful moment. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And if you've been listening to the scroll as it's been read to you, as it was sent to these churches and throughout these regions, and you recognize this call to the one who conquers, well, that's not me. To the one who conquers, well, that's not him. To the one who conquers, that's definitely not them. Here we have one who has conquered and that should trigger your memory to know yes this is the one, this is the one the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David, this is the one so in this as we despair before our unworthiness we have to actually start to do What has caught so much flack among so many, but deconstructing our understandings of faith. How many of us have friends, neighbors, family members who said, in this moment where I've seen the church behave really poorly in this area or that area, or in this moment where I see these people doing these things that run counter to all the things that I thought I believed... Or when there's one moment we think, ah, here the church can really knock it out of the park, and instead it just kind of crumbles and falls and fails. Is it not right? Is this not the appropriate thing for our hearts to step back and say, wait a second, I need to evaluate this whole system? And if the ways that your love of the church has gotten in the way of your love for Jesus, tear it down. And, church, hear me rightly. If the ways that your love of your systems of theology have gotten in the way of your love for Jesus, tear it down. If the ways of your love for people who are similar to you or who look like you or who think like you have gotten in the way of the love of Jesus, tear it down. Even if it's painful, even if it scares your mom. Even if it makes you feel shaky coming back into a church service and going, do I really know this? Because everything that would stand between you and Jesus Christ himself is nothing but a hindrance. And you should absolutely despair of it because it cannot open the scroll and it cannot bring the kingdom. And if your heart does not begin to weep at this point... then maybe you don't know how much you still have yet to tear down. I love this moment. Um, and, as I be- and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy of the scroller to look into it. And it, like, he wasn't just weeping like quietly, calmly, in good Presbyterian. <laughs> oh, there's a tear that's weeping. <laughs> no, but he's like, this man is ugly crying. Like, ah, what are we going to do? Until an angel, like, ooh, this guy needs help and kind of steps over, hey, man, let's talk. Um, but we should be deconstructing. You should be untangling all that would try to use the name of Jesus or co-opt his church to accomplish any kingdom other than Jesus Christ. And there's no room for variance within that. Fix your, your hope on Jesus by despairing before unworthiness. Finally, as we cultivate a hunger for worthiness, and then as we despair before all the things that would fall short, we must then, of course, fix our eyes on the one whom God has provided. And that's so much of the push of this text, and that's why I wanted to bring that to us this morning. That's why I want to stand here as we look ahead towards the Advent season, Because who is it that we have? Who can open the scroll? And I'll flip back to uh, Revelation chapter one. Because, oh man, does he have an amazing introduction. I wish we could have the band back up here and maybe they could rip into like Back in Black or I don't know, something awesome by Led Zeppelin because... (laughs) John, in his vision. Look at with me in chapter one, verse nine. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. What a mission statement for the church, right there. I was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And startled, He turns around and this is what he sees. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the seven lampstands one like a son of man clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool like snow. His eyes were like a flaming fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. This is the one who is worthy. This is the one whom all the angels will worship and fall down before. I won't even get into what these four creatures and whatever is going on with them. But I want you to see when when the angel pulls John around in chapter 5 and says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And he can open the seven seals. This is no lame hope that he is bringing him into. This is the fulfillment of everything. Everything God has spoken from the very beginning to the very end. And he stands before him and here he is brought into worship and in awe. And that's what the whole rest of chapter 5 is. It's a whole chapter of just everybody going, whoa. And answering with glory and praise. And and remember, this is not the church. This is not some movement. This is nothing you can brand on a t-shirt. This is just... Jesus Christ. And it's at this point that John turns, and what would you expect to see again? He's seen the face that looks like the sun. He's heard the voice of the trumpets and the waterfalls, and he's been told that this person is the Lion of Judah, that he is the Root of David, and he turns, and what does he see? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And I just want you to see, God has not come to bring his power by crushing everyone else. He's come to bring his power by crushing sin, which you and I are completely unworthy and unable to do. But there is one who is, and it is God Himself in the man Jesus. And so, His greatest embodiment, though, yes, He sits on the throne is also in the form of a lamb slain, blood poured out so that the Savior that you cannot be and the Savior that you will not find in this life and in this experience is actually provided already for you. Because all of the unworthiness that we should rightly despise and turn away from and askew with all of our life Well, he became that on our behalf. And it's because of that, because the lion of Judah is also the slain lamb, lamb, because the root of Jesse, the lion of David, is also the slain lamb that we can come to him with confidence in the midst of our own struggles and our own brokenness and lay our hearts down before him as well does not come as one who is exhibiting abusive power over others, but his headship, the headship that we are all to follow, is embodied in self-sacrifice, laying himself down such that at the end of Revelation, I know I'm cheating because I'm skipping all the complicated stuff in the middle. Chapter 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea is the chaos waters of life. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then listen to how this king exhibits his power. What will the fullness of his kingdom look like? It looks like this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I'm going to keep reading. And he said, To me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Those who, the one who conquers, catch that again? Will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. When we stand before Jesus, we are standing before the Lamb who was slain the one who is worthy to open the scrolls and roll forward the full coming of the kingdom of God in its fullness. And so we must, of course, cultivate our hunger for this worthiness. We must absolutely despair before all unworthiness, but most of all, and most importantly, we must fix our hope on Jesus himself, the Lion of Judah, The root of David, but also the lamb who was slain. A couple final points of application from this. Because he is the slain lamb, we too can serve his kingdom. Because John wasn't just then spirited away and that was the end. John was sent right back from his vision to Patmos, his imprisonment. And this letter, I mean, how many thousands of years later are we now? And this is to us. And we must keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ because we have yet to live out his call here in this life and in this world. We are participants of this kingdom. So what does this look like? Does this look like us stomping around and beating everyone with our Bibles and tearing down everything else? No. This gives us a gentleness and a graciousness. For many of us, this means that we have to start getting out of the arguments that we find ourselves in because all we're doing is trying to establish the worthiness of some savior that could never be the one whom Jesus is. Some of us, this means that we have to get out of these arguments and we kind of have to get offline in some ways. Paul tells Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the faith, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you hear that? Ignorant controversies, quarrelsomeness, That's the will of the devil. For some of us, this means actually you have to stop riding the fence. For some of us, we need to actually get online and need to start using our voices more. Peter talks about this saying, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good that it should be God's will than for doing evil. Why? Because our conquering king, our lion of Judah, is also a lamb who is slain. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, giving us a still more excellent way. That the way of Jesus, the way of bringing his kingdom, the way to actually follow the one who is worthy to open the scrolls, is that if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing, nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. That's why the series that we just finished through 1 John can be summarized in the statement of love one another. That's why the mission of the king, while he does conquer all evil, he also is himself conquered. So that delivering us from evil, he might bring us into the peace that he has accomplished. This is who Jesus is. So brothers and sisters, when we are tempted to think that Jesus is not enough, that the way of the cross is too soft, too wimpy, When we say in our hearts, oh no, all I have is Jesus. Remember, God has provided us the one who is worthy. Who has overcome all. So that we might have the privilege and the call to fix our hope on Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your mercy. Again, our hearts cannot fix their hope on you of themselves. So, Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, and slain Lamb, do that work in us which we cannot do in our own hearts so that we might join in with the living creatures and with the angels and with the elders and with the multitude that you would call from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and cry out with our hearts as well, worthy, 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 and holy, 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 are you, Lord Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. It is in your name and by your mercy that we pray all of these things. Amen.